I love calm far too much. And we talk about those, those things you get upset if you lose. Unfortunately for me, one of those idols is calm. Leanne and I have joked that before that if our home were on fire, my first instruction would be that none of us freak out, but we all just keep calm. So I'll just stay calm. You know, there are situations where a calm, rational, reasonable response is necessary and possible. You stay calm in the midst of it and just deal with the situation. But there are other situations that are panic-inducing. There are times to run away from danger as quickly as possible. Maybe not, you know, single file line, remain quiet, get there in an organized fashion, just get out, get there. You know, in a similar way, there are temptations that we must endure from the thick of it, from the middle of it. There are other times when the only proper response to temptations that we face is to run away, to flee. The book of Genesis, Joseph, remember the story of Joseph, right? Hope so. Joseph found himself in a scenario like this. He was a slave in the house of a man named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife sought to seduce Joseph regularly. The text said day by day urging him to sleep with her. Joseph did his best to ignore her, keep his distance, until one day she literally caught him by his cloak alone in her house and tried to drag him to her bedroom. And by God's grace, Joseph did the only thing that he could do. He slipped out of his cloak. Must have been a cool-looking move. Leaving it in her hand, and he ran away. He fled that temptress, and her temptation. And what had been his reasoning or his motivation for resisting? Well, we have it in his own words. He told her, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Not against my family reputation, not against your husband, not against the other servants, not against you. How could I do this and sin first and foremost against God? It's also good for us to consider Jesus's temptation in the wilderness. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the one that had led Jesus out into the wilderness uh, and commanded him to fast for, and pray for 40 days. It was clearly God's will for him to be there, and there was no escaping what was to come. In this state of exhaustion and weakness, Satan comes to tempt Jesus. The text records three temptations. First, you're hungry. Turn these stones into bread to feed yourself. Throw yourself off the temple to prove that God is with you and will protect you. And then the final, worship me, worship Satan in exchange for ruling the kingdoms of this world. Jesus could not flee these temptations. It was God's will for him to face them, unable to flee Jesus fought. He took up the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word, and he attacked lies with truth. It is written, and I will obey. Although he seemed to be alone with Satan in that wilderness, Jesus knew that God was watching, and God was with him through his word, through his Spirit. So these, these two stories demonstrate that both Joseph and Jesus, Jesus, of course, more so, perfectly. It's not like these two stories, like, oh, even playing for you, I got, be like Joseph, be like Jesus. It's about this, no, right? <laughs> Huge disconnect. But yet in a similar way, both of them were, we could call men of God. 
If you've read through the Old Testament, the, the phrase man of God is a title found throughout different passages referring to different individuals, men like Moses, Moses, the man of God, David, Elijah, Elisha, others, men of God. And this points to a special place that these men played in God's plan for his people. And it was accompanied by strength from God to fulfill the task that God had called them to fulfill. Man of God. In our text this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6, I'm going to turn there, 1 Timothy chapter 6 for our text, Paul calls Timothy a man of God, one who is called to serve Christ and his church according to God's word and for God's glory. And today, we here at Risen King Church, we have the opportunity before us to formally call four men to the service of Christ and his church. And so the chairs are here before me, not just an architectural design type change. Uh, here's a reminder, sort of a, let's, we can call it a, a prop throughout the sermon, that at the end of my sermon, before we come to the Lord's table together, uh, I'm going to call up Ken Smith and Gerald Foster and Glenn Painter, who's already serving in the back, and Jason Powell. We're going to call them forward and ordain them, lay hands on them and pray, setting them aside for the ministry that we believe God, through us, his church, is calling them to. Ken and Gerald as elders Glenn and Jason as deacons. We'll be setting them aside for the ministry to which God has called them. And our text today is a perfect fit to precede that ordination, that laying on of hands and setting aside for ministry. So Ken and Gerald and Glenn and Jason, you belong to God. You belong to Christ by nature of your justification, your adoption through Christ. But as you enter into these new offices, it is appropriate to recognize that you are a man of God in a new sense. As a man of God, like Timothy, you have a new weight of responsibility placed upon you that we see in this text this morning. As a man of God, you must... Chase after the right goals. You must fight to the finish, and you must remember that God is watching. Let's read our text, 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 
who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. A man of God must chase after the right goals. Chase after the right goals. See two directions to this that we want to talk about. This is in verse 11. As for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue, and then he goes on through this list. This is in the context of the letter. We've talked about a number of different things. Paul's been warning Timothy about identifying and calling out and opposing false teachers and also warning him not to be like them. Right? That's what we talked about last week in identifying these false teachers. Right? Know what a false teacher looks like to avoid following them. Don't follow them. And then also don't be like them. Right? And so here is the, the conclusion, the contradictions. Like Paul paints one picture. This is what this looks like in the love of money. You are to do something different. You, Timothy, man of God, Flee everything that came before in this letter. All the different manifestations of of sin that can pervert the gospel. Especially valuable in identifying sinful distractions, sinful motivations to life and ministry. Especially valuable. The text right before, like I just mentioned, the preceding passage regarding the love of money and its dangers. Dangers that culminate in apostasy, wandering away from the faith or impaling or piercing themselves through with many pangs, sorrows, and griefs. Identify these sinful distractions, their motivations, know what the end is for that. And then once identified, whether these things are are a current problem, oh, I see the love of money, whether it's a current problem, whether it's a potential problem, we identify it, and then we flee from it. We run away. We escape the danger found in these things, danger to us, danger to Christ's church. As is so often the case, Paul gives two sides to his exhortations. It's not just don't, right? The clearest way to know that you're properly running from these sins is to be running toward their opposites. Paul gives a no, he often gives a yes, and he does that here. Flee these things, pursue Christ-honoring virtues, we could summarize these six things, right? We've, we've identified sinful distractions and motivations in previous texts. Now he says, as you are turning away from those things, head, headlong, right? Run, chase after, if I remember correctly, like the term for this pursue a lot of times actually has to do with persecution, like how people like Paul, like others would chase after those who were faithful followers of Christ, hunting them down to throw them in prison. It's like you need to have that kind of zeal in pursuing, chasing after, hunting down Christ-honoring virtues. So what are the things that are opposite to the, the love of money or the dissension and slander and envy that Paul warned against? First, righteousness. Pursue righteousness. This is conduct that is in line with God's revealed will. Obedience to his commands. Now, anytime we talk about righteousness, I always want to be like, whoa, hold on. What, what kind of righteousness are we talking about here? 
It's like, I thought, I thought we were righteous in, in Christ by faith. Yes, justification, we are declared righteous by God. So we're not talking about obedience done to justify or save yourself, of course. But that's not all that righteousness is. There's righteousness imputed to us, transferred to our account. Then there's righteousness produced in us. Justification is, is the beginning of that process. Sanctification continues it, and then it ends in glorification. So this conduct in line with God's revealed will is not to earn or keep your standing before God. Rather, it is because you are God's child. It is because you are righteous in Christ. It is because you are forgiven And as forgiven, you are grateful, grateful and changed and in love with God. And from all of those things, righteousness flows by the power of the Holy Spirit through the lives of a believer. We pursue righteousness. We pursue godliness as well. We've talked about godliness a number of times. Paul's used that word a lot throughout 1 Timothy And along with this righteousness visible to others, we sang about that, actually read about that. Jesus says, let your light shine, right? Be salt, be light. And if you're like, well, what does that look like? He says, do this so that others may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven, right? We can can overcorrect from thinking righteousness is to save us to thinking righteousness is nothing that we have to do with at all. It's not biblical. It's not right. We pursue righteousness. We pursue godliness. And along with righteousness visible to others is the motivation, I would say, of godliness that's visible only to God. Only you and God know the reverence that is in your heart. The awe-filled reverence that, that drives what you're doing, that, that would be producing that righteousness. We pursue righteousness motivated by godliness. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Right? Justified by Faith, you guys are getting there. I only wrote down like the three, but you would have have caught on. The the whole leaning and ear thing, man, I wanted you to answer. We pursue faith, not make sure you have believed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is not a one-time past event that we then move past from. We must be ever trusting Jesus until we see him. We must believe and pursue faith believing. Righteousness, godliness, faith. What's the next one? Hopefully you have your Bible open. Love. What is the first and greatest commandment? Here we go again. Love. No, first and greatest. Some of you said neighbor. Love God, the Lord your God, with all your hearts and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And if you're like, well, which part of me does that exclude? It's like, well, then you're, you're missing it, right? All of you, love, like all of you, but like all of you, like 100% of 100% of you, love the Lord your God. What's the second commandment? Like unto it. 
There we go. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's not my neighbor? You missed it again. That, that guy. That's your neighbor. The one that you want the exemption from. What's the distinguishing mark of disciples of Jesus? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. These loves consist of affections and actions like that godliness and righteousness. 1 Corinthians 13 paints a picture of what this love looks like if we need that type of reminder. So men of God, pursue that kind of love for God and for neighbor in how you shepherd and how you serve Christ's bride. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness. Great, great word. Translated a few different ways, as many things can be. So this is also, when you think steadfastness, you could, you could insert or translate that, you could say that's perseverance. We could talk about that as endurance. Maybe you would use a word like fortitude. King James said patience. Continuing for the long haul. Bearing up under difficulty. Sitting on a beach in Florida, for example, and 75 degree weather with a nice breeze blowing, not endurance, right? Facing heat and cold and deserts and mountains, facing hunger for days or weeks, facing shipwrecks, sleeplessness, facing soldiers that are hunting you down, false teachers like Paul did in his ministry throughout the Mediterranean world in the first century, that requires endurance. Misunderstanding and contention and opposition and difficulty for the sake of the gospel, that requires endurance. That's what we are to pursue. But not only that, the sixth is we're pursuing gentleness. You know, you can bear up under difficulty and as you strengthen that one side, it can become a callousness that's built up, right? You can become hardened to difficulty, which might make it easier to endure those things. But if you could also become so battle-hardened by difficulty uh, that we can stop caring about people, we could stop responding to their needs and their weaknesses and their failures with mercy and with compassion. So we endure, growing stronger, but yet we maintain Gentleness toward the weak as God gently and mercifully and compassionately deals with us. So let us pursue gentleness. These six are just a sampling of Christ-like virtues that we are to pursue as our goals. So I'd ask you, what are your goals? What are, what are you chasing after? What are you fleeing from and what are you fleeing to or what are you pursuing? What are you aiming at? Because a man of God first must chase after the right goals. A man of God must also fight to the finish. Verse 12, man of God must fight to the finish. Fight, this is not a game. This is not coming together as God's people, living day by day before Christ. This is not a game. There are consequences 
to the decisions that we make in relationship to our own spiritual lives and the spiritual lives of others. There are consequences and there are serious stakes. You know, we, we act and we react differently when there are or aren't stakes, right? Some of you, I imagine, are, are competitive. I'm, I'm competitive, but not always successful, which means that I struggle with anger. <laughs> I should have done better than this, right? But, you know, talk about disc golf. It's like a kid, I could hit a number of putts from a certain distance until I'm with my buddy Jake and I need to get it to try to keep my score in line with his. And all of a sudden, I miss. Ah, things, we act and react differently when there are stakes. So some of you might not like this story, but we can talk about it. Uh, in seminary, I had a number of buddies. Tim was not one of them. And we would get together and we would play poker. None of us, we were poor and we didn't want to gamble. So we didn't use money. Well, poker, if you ever played that, is useless if there are not stakes. It's like, well, I don't know, go all in. Nope. Whoop. <laughs> no big deal. It just doesn't work. It's a stakes game. But we were all so competitive. We didn't need money. There, I mean, those games that we played, if there had been, you would have thought that there was $10 million on the table. Because it was just like, oh, I can't believe you tricked me on that. What is with that? It's just like, wow, did that guy just lose his house? No, he lost nothing. He brought no money. He, but it wasn't like snacks. I mean, nothing. That ship was, the plastic was worth more than it actually was, but you would not have known. Some things require stakes, and people act and react differently when there are stakes. So when we think about the Christian life, we think about the Christian ministry, do we think it's inconsequential or eternally consequential? Do we say, this is low stakes? You know, it'll all pan out. It's all going to be fine. Or do we recognize the fact that it's serious? Our Christian lives and gospel ministry, they are a fight. It is a battle. What we're doing right now has to do with warfare. There are difficulties. There are enemies. There are battles. There are weapons. There's a shield. There are victims. There are victories. There are sides. There is good, and it's working against evil. There is light, and there is darkness. No offense to you guys. This is not the side of darkness. That's not what I'm trying to communicate. There's the kingdom of Christ battling in opposition to the kingdom of Satan. There's a worthy cause for this good fight. Armies battles. There's sides, and there are reasons for that. Sometimes the soldiers are like, what are the reasons? Why are we here dying? Do we really believe in this cause, or have we just been sent out here for the pride of some general or emperor? A lot of times that's all the case that it is, but sometimes there's a cause, cause that every person there on that battlefield feels deeply, willing to eagerly give their life, not just to follow an order, but for the defense of their family, for the good of their nation, for the right cause. See, we have a worthy cause for what kind of fight? Fight the good fight of the faith. 
The worthy cause for this is the faith, Christianity, the gospel, the glory of Christ. That's what we're fighting for. The good of his people found in the glory of Christ. And herein lies the reason for this battle. It's because of our faith in Christ. If we were not Christians, we would not be fighting this good fight. Wouldn't be part of it. We would, we would be victims of it. We'd be engaged in a context. I'm not trying to say that there are neutral parties, but we're fighting the good fight of our faith because we have trusted in Christ and thus engaged in this battle. Through our faith in Christ, we join his kingdom. We've been rescued from darkness, transferred to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of light. We join his kingdom. We join his cause in struggling and fighting and wrestling, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as Paul wrote to this church that we find in Ephesians chapter 6. You know, sometimes this word fight, fight the good fight of the faith. Sometimes it's a battle term, like I've been saying. Other times it's an athletic term. Both of these are common metaphors for Paul, right? Soldiering, competing as an athlete, also farming, he does these type of things. Our language has borrowed this word from the Greek that Paul wrote in. Sometimes we translate things. Sometimes we just, what's called transliterate things, which languages just steal or borrow words. It's just how it works. Well, that happened here. So if we were to leave this phrase mostly untranslated, it would say, agonize the good agony of the faith. Does that sound like resting in a hammock and sipping lemonade? Agonize the good agony of the faith. We might be like, good and agony? What? How do those things go together? Now, we're reminded it's, it's not the easy agony. It's good as in for the glory of God, the sake of Christ. It's good in that, in that moral sense. It's worthy. It's a worthy battle that we're agonizing in. There's no promise of ease. The stakes are eternally high. The enemy is conniving and fierce and merciless, but our captain, our king, has already won the war. He is victorious, and his victory will be revealed one day, and until that day comes, we must fight, and we must fight to the finish. We chase after the right goals, but we fight to the finish. And the next sentence in verse 12 is connected to this fighting. Fight the good of fight of the faith. And ESV has period and then another sentence. We could change that and say instead, fighting, fight the good fight of the faith, taking hold. Taking hold of the eternal life to which you were called. This is focusing on our goal or the victory on the other side of the struggle or fight. There are consequences, but the battle is worth it because of the good that comes on the other side. Paul speaks of this same idea in, in an athletic type context in 1 Corinthians 9, right? He's like, I'm running and I want you to run, but I want you to run not aimlessly. And I would demonstrate that 
but it would look really weird, and I don't want it, I don't want proof of that in your eyes, in your minds, or on the video. Don't run aimlessly. What does he say instead? Run in such a way as to win the prize. It's not just a leisurely stroll, right? Run to win. Keep the prize in mind. Philippians 3, he says the same thing. He's like, I am pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Like, I don't want to just participate. I want to fight to the finish. I want to run not just to the finish line. I don't want to slow down just prior to that. Don't stop short of it. You run through the finish line. Right? You watch any of the Olympic trials and these, these outstanding sprinters, and they, they all just kind of come to a leisurely stop just before the finish line, and just one of them taps it, right? I mean, watch the sprinting trials, those 100 meters. They like have to do three more laps just to slow down. I think there was one where a guy couldn't stop himself, and he like fell over the barriers like 50 meters past it. The thing, I was like, is he going to get up? And he did. He just disappeared. Did you see anybody see that video? It was cla- It was like, wow, he's going so fast. It's like he's not running. He's not stopping short. He's like this. Maybe this is 150 meters. He could have just just taken off. You know, maybe he needed wings or brakes or something. That's that. Is that your mindset? It's just kind of like you know what? I want to just kind of leisurely taper off in my walk with Christ as I get older. Or is it I want to finish? strong. I want to finish well. I don't want to come up short on the battle. I, and I trust you, Gerald and Glenn, Ken and Jason, and all of us in fighting this battle, even if it's not a particular office that we're being called to. Some of these things, as with everything else, is is centered to them, but applying to all of us. I'm only 36 I don't want to get to 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, however long the Lord has for me, either in ministry or just in my walk with the Lord. I don't want to get just shy of finishing well and fall away. Oh, that, that doesn't happen. That happens all the time because people have failed to flee and pursue, and people have failed to fight taking hold of eternal life, knowing what the goal is, and that it's not just ease and comfort. Fight to the finish. Don't just stop fighting the battle or become complacent because victory seems certain. Victory is certain. So take hold of it. Make it your own. Clutch it. Fight to the finish. This is tasting the victory, knowing with certainty the prize and promise of eternal life that is ours in Christ. The prize that is ours in Christ. Not was, not will be. Is. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, eternal life is ours. Right? Do, you, do you recognize, Christian, you, you're not going to be eternally alive. You are eternally alive. Right? Yeah, we'll go through that physical death that our kernel will be buried in the ground most likely. 
right? And then what will grow from that? We don't yet see, 1 Corinthians 15. But you are eternally alive. You have eternal life. Remember, what was Jesus' definition of eternal life? This is eternal life, clouds and harps in heaven. Is that what he said? No, this is, this is eternal life, he said. Knowing God and Jesus Christ that he has sent. Do you know God? Like, oh, not like I should. Well, good, glad you recognize that. But you know God. You are known of God. You have eternal life. It's already started. Take hold of that. Grasp it. Clutch it. Make it your own as you fight the good fight of faith. Live radically in the light of the age to come. See, what we've experienced, we have as a present possession, but we don't yet know all that it will be. So there is still faith. There is still hope, but we have to know. It's like, well, will that happen? No, it, it, you're already living that out. Creation waiting for the revealing of the sons of God because Christ is going to make all things new, but do you recognize the fact that he's already started doing that? He will one day make a new heaven and a new earth, but the first fruits of that new creation is every believer. The transformation that's happening in your life is a sign of eternal life. We're on that trajectory toward what we will be when we see him. So we run and we fight and we chase with that in mind. God himself has called you into his kingdom, enlisted you into this fight. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Not called by a preacher, called by God. God himself has granted you eternal life. God himself has commissioned you for this work and sent you into this battle. And if he's done that, he has, will he not be faithful to reward you as he has promised? He did not spare his son, so his love is with you. And if he sends you into the battle, will he not reward you? as he has promised, not because you deserve it, but because that's what he said he will do. Well, what's at the end of this fight? Is it worth it? Eternal life continues at the end of this fight. And yes, it's worth it. Fight the good fight of faith. Fight it to the finish. Timothy was called by God into this eternal life as we are. Eternal life to which you were called and the eternal life about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So Timothy had publicly confessed that his faith was in Christ in order to receive this eternal life. He said something like, yes, I believe that Christ Jesus is the son of God who lived and died for my sins and rose again. I trust in him to forgive me of my sins. I am confidently waiting for him to return, to rescue me, and make all things new. These aren't the exact words that Timothy used to confess, but they match the content of his confession, his good confession, or his, we could call that a profession as well. 
publicly stating, this is what I believe. This is what I've built my life on. This is what I'm committing myself to. There's kind of two options. So it's like, well, what exactly is Paul talking about? It could be a confession of faith, a profession made at his baptism. Do you believe these things? This is what I believe publicly saying, this is who I am. This is what I have believed. That could have taken place at his baptism. Perhaps it was a confession made at his ordination. I commit myself to this gospel that I have believed and follow. We can't know for sure, but the presence of many witnesses confirms that it was public. Paul heard it. I imagine his mother and grandmother likely heard it. They're mentioned in 2 Timothy. Other elders heard it. Members of the church heard it. Men of God, when you are tempted to doubt or to give up in this fight, it is good and proper to remember God's calling of you as a saint, to remind yourself of the hope of eternal life awaiting you, to recall your conversion, to recall your baptism, and to recall today your ordination to this, having been identified by the, by the body and trained and evaluated and being put forward in this special way, to look back on this and be like, I see, I see Christ in this. I see his work and I will fight the good fight of the faith. And it's good for us as fellow believers in the church to remind each other of these significant moments, significant moments like our conversion, if we know those stories, significant moments of growth, right? Baptism is, is a public event because then we can all point back to those type of things. I'll, I'll draw attention to her just briefly because she's my daughter, even though I normally try to ask permission, right? But we watched Juliet baptized. Is that last Sunday or two Sundays ago? I just lose two Sundays ago. <laughs> time's, time's going all over the place. So we watched that for her profession to be made public, but also for all of us to be able to serve in accountability with her, to when she doubts, when she questions, when she struggles, to be like, do you remember the promises of God in the waters of baptism? You remember what he said, that as you have trusted in him, you've been united to Christ. As you've trusted in him, you've been cleansed of your sins. It's like water would cleanse the external dirt. So the blood of Christ has cleansed you from that. Press on. See, that's the, that's the means of assurance that being part of a body of believers faithful to the word offers, that we point each other back. It's like, what would you remember? Remember how you shared this truth with me? I'm going to share this truth back with you. Remember how you prayed for me when I was struggling? I pray, I'm praying for you when you're struggling. These significant moments of, of public confession and life being lived together, loving one another, is so necessary for us in our chasing after the right things and fighting the good fight of faith. In verses 13 and 14, Paul reaches through his letter, he grabs Timothy by the shoulders to emphasize the seriousness, the solemnity of his exhortation or his charge. Right in the middle, I charge you. And here's, this is a long sentence. Paul loves long sentences. I probably love long sentences. 
But to make sure that we understand what's happening here, so you see 13 and it jumps to 14. I charge you, verse 14, to keep the commandment. What commandment? Well, we, we don't have to go far to chase after the right goals, to fight to the finish, and to do so in an unstained way. Keep the commandment unstained. Keep the commandment free from reproach. Keep yourself from sin. And as you are above reproach, when you were evaluated to serve as an elder or as a deacon, remain free from reproach, above reproach, as he says in chapter 3. Well, as men of God, as Christians generally, how, how long... <laughs> How long does this race go? How, how long will this fight last? How, how long do I have to flee and pursue and fight? Well, what does it say? Keep the commandments until when? You see it? Until Jesus comes back. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You run till he stops you. You fight until he ends the battle, one way or another, till he takes you out of it, or till he comes back and just ends it all. You fight until Jesus appears. This is yet another piece of this taking hold of eternal life and focusing on the prize ahead of us. A man of God must chase after the right goals, must fight to the finish, and now Paul brings his charge to Timothy to a climax as he exhorts Timothy that a man of God must remember that God is watching. Chase and fight, remembering that God is watching. It's verses 13 through 16. I charge you in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ Jesus, and he, he gives a, a brief um, clarification, a little bit more information about each of those, with two, two witnesses that he's mentioning, the presence of God, the presence of Christ Jesus. There are witnesses watching. He is being observed as he flees and pursues and fights and lays hold of eternal life. These witnesses aren't merely Paul or his godly mother or grandmother or his brothers and sisters in the church at Ephesus. We have two witnesses. The first is God, which I think it's, it's clear he's talking about God the Father. God the Father who is God the Creator. The presence of God, God who gives life to all things. God made all things. God gives life to all things. Everything that has breath has it presently and ongoing, continues to breathe because God is keeping us, it, them alive. God gives life to all things. He created and he sustains. From him, through him, to him are all things. Nothing exists except from him and through his will. And the all-powerful one who made the universe made Timothy and sustains Timothy. This is life physically and spiritually has given him life, spiritually sustains him, and has placed Timothy in the midst of the fight he is engaged in. Made all things, has the plan, and took Timothy and said, here's where I want you. Fight. Well, how do we think about this? Like, oh no, 
bad enough everybody around here is watching me. It's like, God's watching me too? This is terrible. No, that's not, that's not the gospel. That's not the truth of Scripture. It's like, oh, I really I wish God would just ignore me. Then you don't, then you're missing it. You're missing who God is and you're missing what the gospel is. See, because he who is so powerful who is so great, is not watching only to evaluate and judge. He's not watching to condemn at all, not those who are in Christ, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if God's not watching to smack us upside the head, what, uh, what good would there be to know that as we're fighting, fleeing, pursuing, taking hold of eternal life, how is it, how is it encouraging to us. God is watching to equip and to enable for service. He knows what you're going through and he knows what you need to go through what you're going through. And he's eager and able and loving to provide all of those things. In Christ, God is for us, not against us. Our service is to him. Our service is for him. He's faithful to remember his servants now to strengthen them and in the future to reward them. God is watching. If we know who God is and we trust in what Christ has done, that's not bad news. In the presence of God who is with you, I charge you. Paul, Paul mentions God the Father as a witness to our lives and ministries. He mentions Christ Jesus also, the Son of God, he who took on a human nature in order to live a perfect life of sinless obedience for us. And having done that, having obeyed, he stood before a human judge. We could say stood before all of humanity, the greatest empire the might of the Roman Empire, represented by an uh, unpopular governor, Pontius Pilate. You hear his name through the Gospels, a couple other places. Having lived this life of perfect obedience, standing before a human judge to be condemned, Jesus made his own good confession. Perhaps Paul is thinking of Christ's confession that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? What's all this hype about? It's simple, Jesus, right? Caesar's king. Herod's a puppet king. Do I kill you or do I let you go? Are you a threat or are you not a threat? Is what they're saying true about you or is it false? Which is more important, this, this uh, trying to exalt yourself in this position or saving yourself? Are you the king of the Jews? It's like, I'll, I'll give you the gavel. Are you guilty or are you not guilty? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. Now that kind of sounds like, well, what kind of answer was that? Like, well, on the cross, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, right? He wasn't saying like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's 
like, yeah, that is who I am. And he goes on in John 18, John gives more of Jesus's words. My kingdom, though, it's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king, and for this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Yes, I am the Christ. Yes, I am the Son of Man. Yes, I am the Son of God. Yes, I am the King of the Jews, but not the Jews only. King of Jews and Gentiles, and the King of everything. Jesus made a good confession. Yes, I am who I was sent to be, accomplishing what I was sent to accomplish. Good confession. And it's as if in charging Timothy to remain faithful in the fight, even unto death, Paul is reminding him that Jesus has already done the same thing on our behalf. It's like, you're not the first one making a good confession. You're not the first one facing Rome and wickedness. Jesus already did this. And he made that good confession on your behalf. Will you make the good confession and hold it on his behalf and with his strength? Timothy is not fighting a fight that Jesus not, did not already engage in faithfully and successfully because Jesus won the war and we're just fighting in skirmishes while we wait for his return. Does this text not find its echo in Hebrews chapter 12? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus is watching. Jesus is witnessing our lives and our ministry. So Ken and Gerald and Glenn and Jason, men of God, our heavenly father is watching and witnessing our lives and our ministries. Our victorious savior is watching and witnessing our lives and ministries. And our victory is certain, although its full revelation is still future. We don't yet see everything under his feet, our feet. By faith, we see it under Jesus's feet, yet we don't see that rule as we would expect it. Christ will appear. His victory will be displayed when? At the proper time. The proper time. I wonder how many martyrs, like Paul, like Timothy, like Peter, like Stephen, John in his suffering, probably all of, the, all of the apostles and so many others, I wondered how often they had wished and prayed really strongly that the proper time had been earlier than it, than it is. As in, will you, will you display yourself now? Before the sword falls? 
before the nails are through my wrists, before the noose, before the torch lights me, before the lions are released, before the soldiers, before the policemen come and drag me off to prison, would you display yourself now? Would this be the proper time? Yet to the present, it hasn't hasn't happened. And for Paul and Timothy, so many others, the proper time ordained by God remains future. But despite that prayer not being answered, that that would be the proper time, that Christ would be revealed, all of these, they trusted and they pursued well and they fought to the finish. So will we continue to trust through struggle and difficulty, through pressure and persecution against the enemies of the world and our own sinful flesh and the devil? Will we endure and remain faithful even if our battle for Christ's kingdom costs us our lives? By God's grace, we will. All writing of Christ and his return, it brings him to a doxology. Paul loves to interrupt himself when he gets carried away in a wonderful, inspired way. He's kind of like, I can't write about God. I can't write about his return without just breaking into praise. So he writes here a glorious statement of praise to his God and his king. These are the truths that must be before our eyes as we chase after the right goals and fight to the finish, remembering that God is watching. Lord willing, I'm going to take more time next week to unpack each aspect of this doxology. But as it is an invaluable part of this text, I'll conclude today by simply reading it. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Lord, our God and creator and king, we, we praise you for Christ our Savior. We praise you for your church grateful to be a part of it. Bless these moments as we, uh, by your, your word and your spirit, call these men to serve you uh, to the, in the, the roles and offices that you have called them to. Amen.